Welcome back to KafaroCast, everybody. Frank here. Um, Aaron is on his way back from British Columbia on a predator hunt. We've got two special guests and one kind of special guest. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we got Jody Martinez and his wife, Abby Martinez. And we got Dana Monroe here, lead manager of customer service yes. and archery all-star. Your co-host today. The co-host today. So Dana just won her first archery tournament. How did that go? Well... I this is your third podcast, by the way. I wanted to point that out. She's getting to be big time. No, it is my third podcast, but <laughs> I didn't shoot as well as I could have, but I still won. You still brought so. home the gold. Mm-hmm. That's a humble brag for somebody who won the entire <laughs> tournament. It was a weekend-long tournament, right? Yeah, it was three, um, no, three just three Friday, different, Saturday, and Sunday, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, three different legs, like three different times you could shoot. So. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, that's pretty six, awesome. So uh, today we're going to talk about um, altitude sickness and uh, Abby is a, what what is your official? My official title? Yes. Yep. So I'm a board certified pulmonary and critical care physician here in the state of Colorado. I work at the University of Colorado. UC shout out. UC shout out. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for being here. Of course. Jody and did you hunt as well? I do. Yeah, so you guys are both a couple of avid hunters, um, so we're, we're going to talk about that because uh, I've gotten um, altitude sickness before, uh, and then I think you told me that you had as well, right? Yeah, I've had it twice, and last time about could probably could have died on the mountain. So. Oh, really? Yeah. So we haven't talked about this in a little while, but uh, one of our first episodes that we did uh, talked with Aaron about my experience with uh, altitude sickness and. Um, the first time I got it was probably five or six years ago. I was on an archery hunt with one of my buddies and, uh, I didn't know that's what I had at the time, but, um, I drank from like a water filter that I thought was dirty. So I thought I got some sort of sickness from the water, but I was telling Aaron about the symptoms that I had. And basically I started getting fluid in my lungs and I was getting extremely tired on the mountain. So we decided to hike out and that night it just got progressively worse and worse. And I got a big uh, Gatorade bottle like this and I would just like breathe out like as hard as I could like <laughs> and then fluid would come out so I filled up two Gatorade bottles that <laughs> night with fluid and uh, we were supposed to hike in the next day and we ended up um, there was another guy at the camp spot with us and he's like dude you need to go to you need to get down lower you need to go to a hospital I think you got altitude sickness and I'm like no I'm fine we ended up just, <laughs> I ended up just going home um, and then uh, two seasons ago same thing, but this time I kind of knew what I had. Um, basically, I was I had, we didn't do any scouting that season. Um, I scouted quite a bit with Aaron in his spot, and then we did a bunch of like backcountry fishing trips. So I kind of felt the pressure once season came around to kind of find deer, and I wasn't finding them. So I was moving all over the mountain. I think I moved camps three different times, and I didn't get the symptoms until the third day of the of the hunt. Um, and basically the third night, which was, I think I went in a couple days early, the third night I was there, I was glassing right before bed and right before I was about to eat dinner. I was only like 50 yards from my camp spot and I started walking back to my camp spot and I got really uh, wheezy and I was really out of breath. And then it progressively, like just like the same as the last time, it, it got worse and worse and worse to where I, I couldn't breathe and I was sitting down eating dinner and I was getting that same wheezing and then the fluid started building up in my lungs. So... Um, that's kind of what I experienced. And then I 
since I knew that's what I was going through, I decided to hike out about midnight that night and it took me like seven hours to go. I don't know. I'm not quite sure how far it was, eight miles or something like that, um, back to camp. And it wasn't much of an incline on the way out. It was more of a, a decline, but I was only walking probably at the furthest 40 yards at a time that I'd be completely out of breath. So, yep. It's yeah. Um, Going back to the first time I had it, so I'm originally from Leadville, Colorado, so everybody's like, how do you get high altitude sickness? You live above 10,000 feet your whole life, you know, but I was a kid. We went to Davenport, Iowa, so my dad was a boxing coach, so I grew up boxing and for a national championship. We boxed. He drove all the way back home. I went to school the next day. I'm playing football. I was trying to not let the kids tackle me all of a sudden. I just about passed out, started vomiting, went home. My mom, you know, apparently I had a I'd always um, pretend I was sick to go home so she didn't take it very serious. So she just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> so like three days later, I could, you know, I couldn't breathe. I could, you could just, my chest was, felt like it was filling with fluid. She took me to the hospital and they're like, they admitted me immediately and said it was high altitude sickness from the, from the change from Iowa back to Colorado. And um, so that was the first time I had it. And then um, I never experienced it again, living up there hunting and stuff. But um I spent eight years in Iraq, so I worked in Iraq for different companies doing different jobs for different organizations, and um, I drew a goat tag. This is 2013, and um, so I didn't have time to come back and scout or nothing because they wouldn't let me leave early or anything, and um, one of my buddies, him and another friend, had a sheep tag, so he told me he'd keep an eye out for goat or mountain goats for me and stuff. And um, So I came back that night, land, landed in Denver, and I about... 4 p.m., went home, slept, got up the next day, went straight up looking for goats. I was at 13,000 feet and on the way up there. And, I, and this one, I, I mean, I was in really good shape. I was, you know, working out every day in Iraq, running five miles a day. So I'm going up the trail following these guys. I'm like, and I couldn't keep up. So it hit me early, and I'm going up this trail, and they beat me to the top like like 30 minutes. And I'm like, so I'm just, you know, you, you're not sure, but you're questioning yourself. You're going, man, how could I be out of shape? how could I be out of shape? You know, I mean, this is kind of embarrassing, you know, you're questioning yourself. So I get up, I finally get up to them and they're like, you know, we've been um, scouting up here where we've seen this goat and we can't see it. So I sit down, I'm like, get something to drink. And I put my binoculars up and about two miles away. I see this goat and I'm like, oh, you mean that one right there? <laughs> and they're like, and they, you know, they had their swirls out and everything. And they're like, holy cow. And they go, you want to go after it? And I wanted to say no because I couldn't tell what was wrong with me. That's how it messes with you. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yeah, let's go, you know. So we go down, go back up. I, I finally get 60 yards of this um, goat, drop it. It rolls about 300 yards. We go after it. Even in the pictures to this day, you can just tell something's wrong with me. You know, I'm not, like, happy or just like, oh, no, now what, you know. <laughs> so um, we did a life-size skin out, packed our packs. Um and the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm going, telling my buddy, I go, let's just go down the hill right there and take a nap, make a fire. So let's just sleep here tonight, you know. I didn't want to get out of there because I just was feeling bad. And he's like, no, we got to get out of here. It was only like four miles, but it was a rough four miles, you know, back up, back down. And and he's like, let's go. And I had my walking sticks out. Just like you said, 40 yards. I'd probably go like 10 steps and I'd have to stop and breathe. It felt like my chest was, my heart was about to come out of my chest. And I'm going, what the heck, you know? And pretty soon it's dark, and I could see their lights. They're going up. They're going up. So I was going up this kind of makeshift trail, and about a mile in, there was a trail that took you back to where we parked. 
and I'm just so messed up at this point. It's dark, and I'm hallucinating, and I'm seeing, like, you know, dog-sized rabbits and stuff. <laughs> going, oh, that's cool. And I'm just sitting there going, holy cow, you know, I have to stop every 10 feet, 15 feet to breathe. And I'm like, and you still can't get your, right? you, you know, you still can't catch your breath. I'm, so I'm just trying to struggle, struggle. Pretty soon I come to where the trail goes where I'm supposed to go. Next thing you know, I'm going straight, and now I'm in this, like, rock field. You know, like the rock fields up in the mm -hmm. mountains, and I'm going from rock to rock going, holy cow, I don't remember this rock field. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, and about that time, I I hear, Jody, Jody, and I look, and I see a light coming. Well, my buddy, Chris Lucen, thank you, buddy, saving my life. He comes <laughs> back down. He dropped his pack up on top, and he comes back down. He goes, what the hell are you doing out here in this, you know, this rock field? You passed the trail, and I'm like... I don't know, buddy. And so he grabbed my pack, put it on, and he took me. We just, I, I had ran out of water, so I'm just filling up water from the lake there and just drinking. We go up to the top. He gives me my pack back, and the two miles is pretty much downhill, kind of a rough downhill. He's like, let's go. Just stay, stay on me. And even the downhill hurt. Yeah. It was just like miserable, miserable, miserable. So we finally get to the truck. I don't go to the doctor or anything. I just pretty much go home. My dad had oxygen at the time, and so I just tried to sleep with his oxygen. I got maybe an hour's worth of sleep. And um, and for like a week after that, my chest was just felt like somebody had hit me with a sledgehammer. It just it must have been just from my heart pounding the whole time. And um, so even at, at that point, you still question yourself like, man, did I really have all the toad sickness or was I or was I just out of shape you know mm -hmm. so about a week later my buddy calls hey I just killed a goat you want to go up and help me pack <laughs> it out and I'm like yeah you know by that time I started to feel better and of course we went right up to the top of the mountain I, just him and I packed the whole thing out ourselves and I was like okay it wasn't because I was out of shape you know but that's how bad it is that it messes with you so bad that I mean, like, I was hallucinating. Me and my buddy were walking. I'm like, you see that rabbit over there? Mm -hmm. And he's like, what <laughs> rabbit, you know? And he's like, come on, just stay on my hills, stay on my hills, you know, just follow me. And he knew right away something was up. And he's like, the whole time I'm like, let's just camp here. Let's make a fire and let me sleep. And crazy thing is, if I was by myself, that's probably what I would have done. And right. I guess it might I not have came out Exactly, of yeah. So, so uh, Abby, um, the stuff that we were both talking about, did we – do you, does it sound like we had the same thing? Because I, I've been reading up on it a little bit, and it looks like there's a few different types of altitude sickness. There are different types of altitude sickness, and what you, the three stories that I heard are pretty classic for different types of altitude sickness. So the different types of altitude sickness include acute mountain sickness, and there's a spectrum which um, of that disease process in the severe, most severe aspects of acute mountain sickness is a high-altitude cerebral edema. The high altitude cerebral edema is more along the lines of what I think Jody just described when he was going up to find his goat. So not only was he hallucinating, but he was extremely fatigued and just telling his buddy Chris, hey, I'm okay, let's just stay here, stay here. So not making those right decisions, and that's pretty classic for um, for haste or high altitude cerebral edema. What you described, Frank, is actually one of the more rare um, on the spectrum of altitude sickness, and that's high that's altitude. Reassuring. <laughs> yeah, um, the high altitude pulmonary edema, and it the symptoms that you describe. Your first day, you're fine, but then two to four days after, you start feeling that chest tightness, and you're coughing up that sputum. That is pretty classic for for hape or high altitude pulmonary edema. My question for you is: When you were looking at the um, at all that froth that you were coughing up or breathing out, was there any blood in there? 
Or nope. was it pink? It was pink, yeah. Okay. No blood, but it yep. was pink. Yep. So a couple of other more minor um, syndromes, if you will, for high-altitude sickness is the acute mountain sickness. That A lot of people will feel that, particularly during the winter season. As people are, the tourists are coming up from sea level up to, to ski or during the hunting season, people coming up from sea level, coming up to the mountains, the Rocky Mountains at a higher level, generally start to feel that at about um, 8,000 feet or so. Fatigue, shortness of breath, they can feel nauseated. In general, that particular syndrome, as long as you don't continue to increase to altitude, uh, you stay at the same level, you try not to exert yourself, you will acclimatize to that altitude. Another rare syndrome and that we rarely see here in Colorado is the high-altitude retinal hemorrhages. Generally see that at um, uh, elevations like Mount, uh, Mount Everest elevations. And the retinal hemorrhage is essentially the... Um, the veins in the retina will um, will break, and it's due to the vascular changes that occur. Wow. So does that cause like some sort of temporary blindness, or what, what exactly does no, it? No, it's rarely severe, but it's just noted. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, Jody sounds like he was kind of uh, doing something along the same lines as me. He didn't go to the to the doctor after he got back, <laughs> and I, didn't, I, I also didn't, uh, right. especially the first time I kind of blew it off, but the second time... I kind of knew what to expect, so I was sick for probably a week and a half after. I did call over to uh, Kaiser across the street and talk to a um, like a PA or something, and they they pres- they prescribed me um, a, is it called acetazolamide? Acetazolamide, yeah. yep. So that's what they gave me, and I guess that's a uh, like a blood pressure medicine. Yep, it's a medication that's used for di- um, diuresis. So when we need to make patients um, get rid of fluid that's in their body, we can give them acetazolamide. So there's a lot of physiologic changes that occur when people go to altitude. So the risk factors for high altitude sickness anywhere along the spectrum include the altitude that you are at and the rate of ascension of altitude. So for Jody, when he was in Iowa going, um, coming back up and having that, um, the symptoms of high altitude pulmonary edema, Though he was very, in very good shape, the issue was that one, one of the risk factors for developing that was that he was boxing the day before. Mm. So high level of exertion is known to be um, a risk factor for people when they make a quick ascent up to altitude. Um, so when we think about the treatments, we're per- there, there's well, there's a couple different ways to think about medications for high altitude sickness. We think about preventative medications and we also think about treatment medications. So acetazolamide is a medication that we can use for blood pressure. Um, it's a weak antihypertensive, but it's also a, um, a diuretic as well. With the physiologic changes that occur when you go to altitude, um, not to get too, not to geek out too much, <laughs> but we change the way that we breathe. And when we mm-hmm. change the way that we breathe, um, that breathing changes our acid base in our blood. When our acid base changes, the kidneys kick in and they try and normalize that acid base. Um, and there's usually a way to be able to um, find a homeostatic um, uh, acid base at altitude. That's called the acclimatization period, if you will. But if we continue to ascent quickly, um, those 
the ability for the body to acclimatize can be, um, has a ceiling effect, if you will. And so we can give medications to help prevent or tolerate or um, accelerate the acclimatization period. Azetosolamide is one that we use for acute mountain sickness and we can um, use for high altitude cerebral edema. For you who had high altitude pulmonary edema, um, it's something that can be used as etazolamide, but that's there's a different medication, something that's called nifedipine, that's also an antihypertensive um, medication. That's the one that we generally think about for preventing HAPE. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I think it well, sounds like I need to get something <laughs> different. So other ways to try to prevent the development of altitude sickness in general is... Um, Again, thinking about avoiding heavy exercise or heavy exertion before you're going to be going to high altitude, the slow rate of ascent at altitude, take your time going up to altitude. Generally, the symptoms begin at about 8,000 feet. If you start noticing headache, that's very common, malaise or feeling tired, some nausea, vomiting, don't continue to push yourself. You can stay at that altitude. Um, make sure that you keep hydrated as well because, again, as the body's trying to normalize the acid base, you're going to be urinating out an arm. You're going to be peeing a lot. Yeah. And I think we all notice that when we go to altitude. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you keep hy- hydrated. Other and, risk factors. And, and alcohol don't count, right, as a hydration? Alcohol does not count as a hydration. No, alcohol can actually uh, um, is a risk factor for developing, uh, can be a risk factor for developing the progression of altitude sickness. It's funny you say that, though, or just in general what you're saying, because um, it got to the point that I'd have it other times coming. So I'd fly back from Iraq and Baghdad's like 745 feet above sea level. And then I'd go home back to Leadville and even just coming home, not going hunting or anything, I'd wake up next day and just, I could tell something was wrong with me again. So what I started to do is I'd fly into Denver and I'd spend the night here. Hmm. And then the next day I'd go up and um, I felt so much better. So yeah, that progression of, you know, slowing the, slowing the, going up in altitude, it, it really helped by spending a night in Denver before I'd go back to Leadville. Yeah. And the, the small research that I did, I, I saw that it kind of is recommended if you're going to go like on a backcountry hunt and you you get these types of symptoms to um, stay stay one night at the trailhead, and then then hike up the next day, and then slowly build your way up. I guess. Yep, absolutely. For those for those hunters to go backcountry, um, you there is this there's a saying for for athletes is that you train high and sleep low. Mm-hmm. So for hunters, I'd say, um, you know, hike high, follow those animals, but come back down to a lower altitude and that will help with the prevention of high altitude sickness. Absolutely. Keeping hydrated, making sure that you're well fed as well is also another preventative um, intervention that you can do. Another medication that hikers or hunters should take, particularly if they've ever had any symptoms of altitude sickness and they're going high country, is to use dexamethasone. So it's a steroid. Um, so that steroid can be given as well in oral form so you can pack it in with you. It's not. It's something that can help with the symptoms, but it doesn't allow for acclimatization. So if you were way back country and you started to develop high altitude pulmonary edema, you could start using the dexamethasone as you are hiking down off the mountain. Mm. The treatment for all altitude sickness is you can give oxygen, but you need to get down to a lower altitude pretty quickly. Um, 
what was I just going to ask you? Oh, so this doesn't happen to me every time and it probably didn't happen to you every time. So is there like, is there any kind of like consistent way to track like when, if it's going to happen to a certain person or? Unfortunately, there's not, um, there's not great, there's not a great blood test or a biomarker for that. Mm-hmm. We know those individuals that ha- are at higher risk for developing altitude sickness, and those are those uh, those patients who have, or those people who have um, pulmonary diseases, smoking-related lung diseases, um, cystic fibrosis, interstitial lung disease, which is um, what I specialize in my, in my clinic. If you have any neuromuscular diseases as well, that will limit your ability to um, modify your breathing in particular. And also those restricted lung diseases from a musculoskeletal standpoint. So if you have severe kyphoscoliosis, that can also uh, put you at risk simply because you are unable to modulate modulate your breathing pattern to normalize your acid base. Mm. Um, But other things to be thoughtful of is avoiding heavy exertion before you go up to altitude. Um, If you are sick, so if you have a viral URI, we know it particularly in children, that's a risk factor for developing um, altitude sickness and avoiding those, you know, big parties before you head out on your uh, (laughs) uh, on your on your hunt. Try to avoid alcohol. Yeah, Frank. Yeah, I'm not much of a partier. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny how how it just you know it just happens though because I mean like like I said I lived in Leadville, born and raised there. Did the Leadville Trail 103 times. Finished, you know. I mean, and it just happened pretty much those two times that it was serious. I mean, I've I've had other times where I've known it was going to happen, so I kind of relax or I'd use oxygen to sleep for the first couple of nights when I got to Leadville, you know, if I, right. if I miss staying in Denver and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's weird when it just happens. Like mm-hmm. you just don't know. And, you know, you guys hike like crazy and you're in great shape, but you just never know when it's going to get you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's exactly kind of why I ask. Cause we're always doing some sort of cardio hike or, you know, we're in the mountains just about every weekend in, in the summer. So, and you're when, already at, you know, 5,000 feet when you're working out all the time. Yeah, so exactly. it's not like you're coming from sea level. So yeah. thinking about the altitude as well is really important. Um, for those of us who live a mile high, 5,000 feet, going up to 8,000 feet, sure, we'll, we may certainly feel that change when we're exerting ourselves, but it's really that big change in altitude and it's the rate in, of the ascent that is is key. Most people will not have any symptoms at 5,000 feet. Those that have symptoms at 8,000 feet, it's because they've come from sea level and mm. literally have come up to 8,000 feet. You're going to feel something. Right. Um, and for you, um, or for hunters who live in Colorado and they're hunt, they're hiking all the time, again, it's the rate of the ascent and if what you did the day before. Did you do your CrossFit? Were you did you run a marathon? That what that's the predisposing factors. Um, but unfortunately, there's really no way to be able to predict when an individual is going to have it. With with an exception of you've had these symptoms twice before, I would encourage you, Frank, for sure to uh, um, be seen by somebody and get a prescription for nifedipine when you go. Um, not to scare you, but the high altitude pulmonary edema is, along with the severe acute mountain sickness, which is the high altitude cerebral edema, if those go untreated, the risk of death is very high. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sounds like it's in our blood, bro. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded, uh, um, 
Yeah, you said not to scare me, but yeah, the, the last <laughs> time I got it, luckily I had I had kind of experienced it before, so I kind of yeah. had an idea. You did the right thing. And I, I, yeah. So I, my plan was, um, you know, I was eating dinner right at dark, and in the summertime, right before hunting season, um, it gets dark like what, like seven, eight o'clock. So my plan was I'm gonna wait out the night and I'm gonna hike out in the morning. It was crazy dark that night, overcast, and I was I don't know whatever seven, eight, nine miles in there, and uh, it just got so bad by midnight I couldn't even lay down I, I couldn't breathe and that's when it's really I really started getting scared I had the uh, in reach thing and it has an SOS button but I figured I was going to try but if you hit that Aaron wouldn't believe it he'd be like yeah whatever Frank whatever yeah. quit messing you must have hit it by accident well and what I figured is I didn't think somebody would be able to get to me in time anyway so I just started walking but I don't know if that was a good idea or a bad idea how long, how long do you have when something like that happens? Like you said, can, would have they been able to reach him? Or it is depends it... on the severity and okay. how quickly he can you can descend. And it sounds like you at least you had the wherewithal to make the right judgment to say, I'm not feeling good. I can't right. breathe. You had um, equipment on you that you could call somebody if you were in true distress, but making the decision to not wait it out, which lots of people can do and do do when they're committed to achieving a goal, be it... Um, I mean, be it climbing Mount Everest or if you found that record-breaking bull, they're going to go after it and putting your life at risk. But you made that right decision by coming down. Um, and it's the descending quickly. You don't have to come all the way down to sea level. Coming down to below 8,000 feet should be sufficient mm -hmm. in order for you to do your symptoms to begin to alleviate. And the that pathophysiologic process that's driving your pulmonary edema to slowly abate. Gotcha. Yeah. So I was at about 12 to 13, between 12 and 13,000 feet. So I finally got back to my truck after seven hours. I drove down most of the way down to where it was, I don't know, probably around 8,000 feet. And I just passed out my truck for a few hours. So that was probably also not a good idea. I probably could have just died in my truck, but I was so <laughs> tired. I didn't sleep that entire night and I was up the, the whole other, um, the day before. So, um, yeah, that's, I definitely will get checked out. So this, the Cetazolamide that I have now, they basically told me, I, I obviously didn't see the doctor, but he told me to take it a few days in advance and take it twice a day while I'm there. So that's not necessarily helping me then. It helps for acute mountain sickness. So and, just the, the, mm -hmm. the less severe stuff. Yep, the less mm -hmm. severe stuff for you. I would probably, if you're going to go back up to 12, anything greater than 10,000 feet, taking the nifedipine, taking dexamethasone so that if you develop those symptoms, you can start taking the dexamethasone as you get off the mountain. That would be my recommendation. Um, my non... I, I happen to know a pulmonologist. <laughs> I know. I'm, I may have to get checked out. Um, Dr. Laura. So I'm, gonna, uh, I'm probably going to have to have you write that stuff down because I don't, can't even sound that out. We're going to probably <laughs> spell it so we can put it on the podcast. But um, Yeah, I'm happy to. Yeah. yeah. Is that, so is that something that um, you can go ask your doctor for or you have to see a specialist and then they would prescribe it to you? Yeah. So you can see a PCP for that. Most uh, primary care providers is what a PCP is. Most primary care providers, particularly in the Denver area or in Colorado, feel comfortable giving the acetazolamide. Um, and I would say most of them would also feel comfortable giving the nifedipine um, for um, for the high-altitude pulmonary edema. Um but you should definitely get checked out. Make sure that your cardio fit, um, cardiopulmonary fitness is um, intact and making sure that you don't have any underlying comorbidities that you're not aware of. Um, there are a couple of other disease states that 
can also predispose you to um, the high-altitude pulmonary edema um, besides the ones that I listed earlier and something called um, pulmonary arterial hypertension. So that's high blood pressure in the pulmonary vasculature within the lungs itself. Um, it's something that I we screen for in my clinic, and it's something that this particular medication, um, when we um, the the excuse me the nicotine when we give is really it can also be detrimental. So that's why some physicians would feel uncomfortable giving that medication. Gotcha. Yeah, I think you also need to kind of go to somebody who knows what you do and understands that. You spend a lot of time at twelve, thirteen thousand feet, so they would be comfortable. Yeah, that's probably true. Because it was medication. probably like a five-minute conversation on the phone when I talked to the yeah. person at Kaiser. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, not that this is completely related, but I was listening to um, that book, uh, David Coggins. Oh yeah. I was listening to him, and he had you a, can't kill me. Yeah, can't hurt me. <laughs> oh, you can't hurt me. My yeah, bad. Yeah, that's a super good book. But uh, he, I think he I'm, did, I think uh, I'm getting it for Christmas. So. <laughs> Cross your fingers. Get You're the cool for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> the audio version's good because they do like a little podcast during, so they'll talk about it after each chapter. But um, he like lived most of his life without knowing that he had a some sort of hole in his heart. So he did all these marathons, and then all of a sudden, like when he hit like forty years old, he he couldn't run like a half a mile. Do you see that very often, or is that something that you guys might specialize in, or probably not, right? Because that's more of the heart. It is part of the heart, but the heart is connected to the lungs. So I have to have, as a pulmonologist, I have to have um, an understanding of how the heart and abnormalities within the heart can uh, contribute to symptoms that I need to be aware of as a pulmonologist now. It can affect the lungs itself. So do I make diagnoses of um, holes in the heart, um, per se, like patent ovaries, foramen ovaries, do I make those diagnoses? Yes, I do. Um, but when I understand one of my patients has an underlying cardiovascular problem, I will always refer them to a cardiologist or, or a specialist in that area simply because I'm a pulmonologist. That's my area of specialty, and that's what I know best. Mm -hmm. um, as you could tell, I was trying to struggle with what does PFO stand, for, um, stand for. Um, <laughs> and I work with my colleagues very closely because I uh, I take my responsibility as a physician very um, uh, – it's it's a privilege to be a physician, mm -hmm. and patient care is key to me, and making sure that my patients are being treated to the best of the, my ability is important. I'm not an egotistical physician by any stretch of the imagination, and if I don't feel like I um, am able to provide the right care for my patient, I will make sure that I find the right individuals to do so. That's awesome. And so you're here in uh, in Denver, right? You I know? am. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I may have to make a stop by. <laughs> yeah, happy to see you. Yeah. Where are you at? Yeah, I'm at the University of Colorado. UC. <laughs> Just kidding. I say that every time because uh, my girlfriend, she's a, she's a nurse at UC Denver, and every oh, time like we'll yeah. go to like an ABS game, they're sponsored by UC, so we'll oh, always yeah. be like UC. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. I don't know. <laughs> kind of kind of a dork. What unit does she work on? I might know her. Uh, she's, uh, she's actually just about to finish, um, nursing school in June. So she's been floating back and forth oh, from good. all over the yeah. place. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to ask her, yeah. but she's been doing like ICU, emergency room, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So. Big shout out to the nurses as I, uh, I also work in the medical intensive care unit and here at the university and the nurses, I would say definitely have the toughest job. 
They are the ones who are, they're doing all the heavy lifting. Um, they interact with the patients literally all day long. You know, I walk in, um, speak to my patients when I'm on the inpatient service for a few minutes at a time because I, I have so many and the nurses are the, truly the ones that not only translate the medical speak, but they're there to provide support and to keep me informed. Um, yeah, the nurses at the university, they are absolute rock stars. Yeah, some of the stories I hear, I'm just like, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I do what I do. Yeah, but, they're rock stars. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, aside from all this serious stuff, how is your guys' uh, hunting season this year? You know, I think um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, I killed a deer, an antelope, and an elk with my bow this year. Abby got her elk this year. She killed a big cow, huge cow. Um, but we kind of, um, I guess, rate our season on, on how full our freezer is. And yeah. I think this is what, our fourth year. We haven't had to buy beef. Yeah, that's a, so, that's a lot of animals. That's you know, a lot of meat. A lot of people are like, how big the rack is, how big <laughs> this and that is. And we always say it's how big the back straps are, you know, oh, yeah, how full sure. our freezer is. I so. would say it's how big our freezers are in our garage. Yeah, we had to buy another one. And, oh, did yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> because last year I got my, I got a pretty good bull, two deer, an antelope, and then she got a deer and an elk last year too. So, yeah, we um we keep the, you know, it was different when I was alone, but now she hunts too, I mean. But we we keep the freezer pretty full, so yeah, we're pretty, awesome. pretty pretty successful, pretty blessed, really. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but um, yeah, she she's a she's a great hunter, not only a amazing physician, but she she knows what she's doing out in the woods. So. She can do it all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and cook. Yes, yeah. very very good we, cook. We, we, <laughs> had, we, had, Dana, guys. we had Dana over, and she helped us make tamales not too long. Yep. Oh, were you making the tamales too? Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> with uh, Nate and. Uh, um, no. Was Nate Kimball? Nate was there. No, no, no. I saw they were making Phil some tamales. And everybody, yeah. yeah, Phil and all them came That's awesome. Yeah. From yeah. Thank, you guys for, thank you guys for bringing those. Yeah. I love tamales. Oh, one, of, one of them is wild turkey from, not not the alcohol, not the spirits, <laughs> but from, you know, turkey we killed this year. So Yeah, you guys, do you now you do a little bit of out-of-state hunting as well, right? Yeah, I hunt Kansas, try to hunt Kansas every year for whitetail, and um, I play the game in Arizona and um, New Mexico for mm-hmm. elk. I try to put in every year. I've only got to hunt it once, and... Um, it's probably one of my favorite states to hunt because the elk down there are just ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, try to uh, we do um, Nebraska and Kansas for turkey every year, and definitely whitetail in, in Kansas. So you know, so you guys stay a bit pretty busy then. Yeah, yeah, I do. So what's uh, <laughs> what's what's your bow setup, Jody? I I'm shooting um, currently. I just sold. I had an RX one, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't fall in love with it. So I I'm shooting my um, my Defiant. Um, it's a, it's um, carbon defiant. Set at um, seventy pounds, you know, twenty-eight and a half inch draw. Um, I, I I don't I don't know. I, there's always that arrow dilemma. Heavy, you light. You know, I think this year's the first year I went light. You know, I'm always around that five hundred. This year I went to four fifty. And um, you've been talking to Henry. Oh, <laughs> no, it's just I listen to you guys a lot of podcasts about mm-hmm. you know everybody this everybody that and I kind of you know find what you know I listen to obviously a lot of good people you know Phil right. Bo Braden those guys try to you know I talk to them because they hunt a lot too and they try to hook me up and tell me you know this and that but um you know I've I've been pretty successful in the woods and um so I kind of know where I kind of need to be you know and this right. year's the first year I went a little lighter and you know when I, I hit that elk um, I 18 yards carotid artery, artery and literally dropped it like it was hit with a rifle i mean that's it, awesome. it dropped in his tracks never moved and um so i don't know if 450 is too light you know i think i mean <laughs> it, it, it proved it proved to right. you know to work pretty well but um 
yeah, I'm addicted to bow hunting. You know, it's kind of kind of new to me. You know, what bow I, are you gonna shoot this year? I don't know. I'm honestly gonna. You know, I shoot left-handed, so yeah. my problem. It's really not a question my, what bow he's gonna shoot this year. It's what bow is he gonna change to every year? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I, I got into that problem, and like she had bought me that Defiant last year for my birthday, and then the RX ones come out, and I'm like. I actually was not going to get one. So, you, you know, Hognets, Jason. Mm-hmm. So um, I was in there one day early, and he's telling me about the RX-1s are going to come out. And I go, well, Jason, I'm not going to get a left-handed bow. But if I do, this is what I'd get. So about a month later, he goes, um, your, 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 bow should be in, your bow should be in about a week. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Hold on a second. I didn't order a bow. He goes, I knew you were going to get one, so I went ahead and got you one anyway. I go, well, Abby's in the car. Why don't you go explain to her? <laughs> so... Um, so I'm I'm eager to shoot the Arcs threes and I've always had a you know a I've always liked the Hoyts and um but no left lefties come out until January end of January anyway oh, so I can't a yeah so I'm, I have to wait till then to shoot all the new new ones and this year I'm um I you know I'm not I'm not a sponsored hunter so I don't have an affiliation <laughs> to anybody you gotta ask Dana over here she gets all the cool stuff I know right you know no. <laughs> no. so I'm a, so I, I'm no. gonna I'm gonna shoot them all this year and whichever one shoots the best you know it's like when abby when we first got her bow i you know i was always a hoyt guy i'm like here shoot the hoyts and stuff but i told her i go let's go everywhere and shoot all the bows that you're interested in and you go with what you like because you know you're a bow hunter you know if, if you're mm-hmm. out there every day and you don't like it you're not going to put the time in you're not going to especially when it counts when that elk or that deer come in and you know you're something you don't like about your bow it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be a hindrance you know it's gonna yeah. bother you so you know, she shoots Matthews and yeah, that was know. gonna be my next question. What's yeah. uh, what's your bow setup? <laughs> yeah, so I have a Matthews Avail um, Spot Hog Sight. I don't remember my what's my draw length. I think it's like 25, 25 and a half. I don't remember. Really? Anyways, sure. Yeah. No, I think it's twenty six and a half. Well, I feel like I'm. I, I feel like I was. I thought I was a lot longer than what I actually am. And um, I think you're shooting black gold because Bo told puts a black gold on you this year. Yeah, well, yeah, that's. He, I'm a spot hog. Right? Oh, all right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Bo, Bo hooks us up pretty good. Yeah, he knows what he's doing awesome. over there. And, yeah. yeah. You know, Phil's always really good to us and pretty amazing bow shop here in town. No limits archery, guys. If you Yeah. Shout out to those guys. Those guys are definitely a wealth of knowledge. They're always helping me out. So. Yeah. So. Um, I think Dana lives there now. She's always <laughs> pretty much. there all the time. <laughs> I'm always day. there in the daytime and she's always there in the evening. I'm, we always miss each other. But last night yeah. we got to shoot together. So that was fun. Dana was, I ruined her favorite arrow. Yeah. That's what you happens. Have a favorite arrow? I do. Yeah, two favorite arrows. Mm. That's they... what happens when she blocks the twelve. You know. <laughs> yeah, she's been killing it lately. Yeah, so I had to aim for her arrow, and yeah. and the bad part was I hit her arrow and it knocked me into the ten. So, uh, but okay. you still take a little pride in breaking the arrow, right? He totally deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, but um, Abby's um, she's been out on a couple archery hunts. We took her turkey first. What, three years ago, four years ago? Mm-hmm. And, I'm, um, I'm, I'm yet to be successful at taking an animal with my bow, um, with a rifle and a shotgun, waterfowl in Colorado, fear me. Um, <laughs> but I will tell you that there is a turkey somewhere in Nebraska that's running around with my arrow stuck in it somewhere. Uh, they're so tough, man. They're, oh their vitals God, are right? so small. You know, it's yeah. just, it's you just, can hit them, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to kill exactly, them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty wicked for sure. Um, so yeah, we're gonna. She she wants to try to get something with her bow. So I think this next season might be her put in the time and try to get her an elk with her bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be awesome. That's yep. the plan anyway. What's she, uh, what's your rifle setup? I have a two seventy Winchester short mag Browning. 
Rowdy yeah. Expo. Mm-hmm. She's yeah, like I, I know you guys had a podcast, not, or I don't know if you had a podcast, but you guys are talking about long range hunting and long range shooting and stuff like that. But um, we don't intend to be long range shooters <laughs> when it, when I hunt with Abby, but her and I are so different. You know, like we had this discussion before with some of my other buddies that have their spouses or their significant others hunting that, you know, when you grow up with it, it's so much, it's so easy for you, you know, some of us to just go, okay, there it is. Boom. You know what I mean? And she's like this, obviously where she is in her career, she's like this perfectionist. So, so she's like, (laughs) I think women kind of take the, a think it through a little bit more well, that, than men do. That ex- explains the species. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> difference in the species. Well, anyway, so, um, you know, like this year we spotted these cows. I'm like, okay, let's get on them. Let's get on them. So we get out there and I range and it was like 200 yards, which is nothing for her. And so I got this tripod for her because it just makes a world difference. Put it out. She's like, I'm like, okay, hit that lead cow. That lead cow turned off to look. Perfect broadside. There you go. And I'm like, waiting for the bang and I'm like okay what's going on I'm like okay hold on they're running again I'm like okay 250 hit that lead cow and then I hear that lead cow is ugly I don't want to hit her I did not or say she's, she's scraggly. the lead cow is ugly I said she looks shaggy and therefore I thought she might be sick so therefore so this is going through her mind and I'm sitting there just waiting for her to mind. shoot <laughs> so they take off again. I'm like, holy cow. I'm like, 310. Hit that cow again. Because, you know, they kind of run. Then the one will peel off and look back. And I'm like, broadside, come on. I'm waiting. And she just wasn't ready. You know, she's going through her breathing and everything. And then I'm like, okay, 360. And I'm just like, <laughs> at this point, I'm watching, thinking they're going to take off again. All of a sudden, I hear boom. And then I hear, I missed. And i like, no, you didn't. And it went 12 yards and just perfect heart shot. <laughs> so awesome. I started rolling down the hill and. So it's always it's always fun hunting with her with each other. I'm glad your <laughs> listeners can actually hear my voice because I do not sound like what Jody just described. Hey, that's so how firstly, I'm hearing it. Yeah. So just for clarity on the story, I think we started at two fifty, not two hundred. I think we were pretty close. Uh huh. <laughs> Could hit him right. with my bow. But <laughs> Jody has a he's he has a very good point. So I grew up hunting. My dad was a hunter in Southern California. Um, I got my BB gun, my first BB gun, at like age six or seven in a mm-hmm. pellet gun. Um, and my job was to patrol the garden and our apple orchard to make sure <laughs> that those blue jays and those squirrels stayed away. Um, then I, when once we moved off the mountain, I didn't hunt anymore. But growing up with blacktail, you know, jerky and venison, like that's what I remember growing up. Um, and my families, my big family get-togethers. I'm Hispanic, so go down to Mexico, and we would we were always, you know, sacrificing animals, a goat or a pig or something. So <laughs> used to being around um, uh, animals and processing those animals. And so when Jody and I met, and I realized that if I wanted to spend any time with Jody. Um, during the hunting season, I needed to get on the bandwagon, so to speak. And so he really reintroduced me back to hunting and whatnot. So um, I am, I'm a physician. So I 
am a geek and I get really cerebral, so I am in my head about <laughs> almost nearly everything. And Jody was a high threat security contractor out in Iraq, so he has sniper training and he hunted his entire life. And so when um, we would have these, um, I'll call them discussions, um, or other people might refer to them as arguments, <laughs> um, <laughs> when we were out getting my ammo, I think there was only one year where I was unsuccessful in getting my elk. Um, we still don't completely understand why, but yes, I'm in my head. I want to take that perfect shot because my thought is I want to kill the animal. I don't want to harm the animal or I don't want mm-hmm. to injure it. And so I will take my time and my breathing has to be spot on. And my heart, <laughs> I, f- I feel like I have such a big heart because I'm such an empathetic person <laughs> that when I get super excited, my heart is pounding. And so when I've sighted in the animal through the scope, uh, my heart's pounding. And so the animal's just going in and out of the scope, so I have to calm myself down because I'm so excited. And again, mm. because I'm, I want to make sure that I take the animal out with a single shot. Um, and as ethical hunters, I think we appreciate yeah. that, yeah. right? Because that's what we try. Yeah. That's what we try also. So it takes me a little bit more time than it does Jody to um, uh, to, to to take the shot. Well, and you're and probably not as familiar with that that high pressure situation as he is because she's you're, yeah oh, she's getting there. Get I put the pressure on her. So, <laughs> so uh, yes, so we will have these discussions because our again discussions arguments. Our first couple of years, he would be yelling at me, shoot, shoot, and I would tell him I can't see it, and he would keep yelling at me, and um, <laughs> and so we would he was yelling and. So so when we have these discussions later, I would say, "Look, dude, you gotta, you gotta, don't yell at me. I will take the <laughs> shot." And but it, but I am I'm an ethical hunter, so I won't take the shot if I um, don't feel comfortable. But so he's come along this past season. Yep, he wasn't yelling at me, and I I was feeling the pressure though. He was great. He was he could just kept calling out the range, and then I finally took the shot. And I'll tell you yeah. the one thing that I do love about that she's a physician is that she will clean and take care of the animal herself i just hold legs for her she's like nope it's my animal and the funny thing was she killed a nice little mule deer buck last year up in leadville and um we she hit it up on the mountain so we drug it down to the road and i said well, i'm gonna hike back and get the truck and she started getting busy and here comes this little jeep there's two guys in it and they pull up next to her working on her deer and they're like why are you doing that <laughs> she without missing a beat she goes because it's my kill. <laughs> so, uh, so it's, yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. No, it's she's good. a little slower than me, which yeah, I'm like, come on, it's getting cold. Let's go. Hurry. <laughs> but she's real meticulous. You yeah. Know? She's real meticulous about it. Pays attention to detail. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They try. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, one of the hardest parts about taking someone else hunting is not being able to be the one pulling the trigger. So I, mm-hmm. you, I do <laughs> that sense of urgency, like, shoot, shoot. Yeah. And I, taking friends hunting and stuff like that yeah. before. Just and you're like, like what's going on? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that this all happened because I have a friend who took his significant other hunting, and it got to the point he stopped taking her. And so I had this conversation. I go, you know, me and you, what we did for a living, you know, I mean, we've carried guns our whole life. We've hunted our whole lives since we were kids. I go, we get it. We know exactly pressure situation. We could put up that gun, boom, you know. You know, you got to realize your wife's never hunted before you got to just sit down and relax. So after we had that conversation, he started thinking about it that way, and now they're hunting together again. So he's like, oh, you put it into perspective for me, you know? So so it works out. But, yeah, it's frustrating at, at the beginning, but yeah. you work through it, and you're like, hey. 
it's their hunt, not mine. I'm just there to help them out. And, yeah, exactly. And she's yeah. pretty and successful. And it's not easy being on the other side either. Just Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> it's not like there's so much pressure of like wanting to be successful and not wanting to make a mistake with somebody who's taking you out hunting. Yeah. And so it's it's Good stressful point. in that that situation as well. Yeah. You just you just got your first antelope, right? Your first big yeah. game killer. Yeah, it got was, her first uh, It was awesome. Yeah. And it was awesome. But I was I Were I was you a with, nervous wreck? No, I wasn't because I was with Joe and Joe's like he's laid back. Yeah, yeah. But like no pressure in that situation. But so I wasn't yelling at you to shoot, shoot <laughs> the animal, shoot. <laughs> no, no yelling. Um, he was yelling at his kid to to shoot, so not yelling at me. <laughs> Did you cry but after? I oh, no, I almost. I thought I was like, okay, don't make fun of me if I cry. And his kid was like. I'm going to make fun of you if you cry. <laughs> but I didn't. So. Her, her, Abby's first antelope. <laughs> you care if I tell him? <laughs> you, you go ahead. You tell him. Yeah. After every kill, except mm-hmm. for waterfowl. Every kill. So the first kill that I had was an antelope a couple years back. And yeah, I cried for about three hours. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie. And then uh, in the fall, when I got my cow, I probably cried for about, oh, 20 minutes or so. And I think it's. You know, I, um, I've thought about this, like, why am I so emotional about it? And I think it's, it's a couple of things. I think number one, my training is I save lives. And, you know, I, in the ICU, when I need to be, when I'm the attending physician, I need to take that, um, that role of making sure that my focus is on saving this individual's life. And, so I manage the chaos, and I am that authority figure in the room. And so I'm used to being um, under high-pressure situations when, you know, it matters, when there is someone's life on the other line. And the goal is, as a physician, is to save a life um, or to alleviate suffering um, and to help with the families. And so it can be extremely emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a very empathetic um, physician and person. And so when I killed that animal, the, the antelope, and every time I kill um, something large game, I think it's that thought that my intention is to go out and kill something. And it is the, I think I go through a, a variety of different thoughts. It's, did I kill it? Did I injure it? Please tell me I didn't injure it because I don't want the animal to suffer. And, oh, my God, I killed something, um, which is it, sort of the antithesis of what I do for a living. And that's my passion in my career. Um, and so I always cry. And it's probably also that adrenaline letdown, too. And then, you know, going up to the animal and thanking it for um, giving its life so it could feed me and my family and um and my friends, I think that's that's also extremely emotional. But yeah, I cry like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's definitely different for everybody. But there's always that sense of uh, accomplishment that also kind of just the relief yeah. and everything else. So yeah. How do you feel? How do you feel? I mean, you kill a lot of animals here. Do you? I mean, you. S- Not really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we we were talking about this on a. Earlier in our podcasts, we had talked about, um, well, as you know, social media is a pretty big thing with the hunting community and everything like that. And there was like this, for a while, it might still be going on, where people would take photos of them crying and and stuff like that, which, in my opinion, kind of ruins the, the moment. Um, 
and me and Aaron were kind of talking about it and, you know, we don't get those types of feelings, I guess, uh-huh. um, generally, but, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as you're not, you know, faking it for the gram, you know, for Instagram, if you're not faking it. But I think everyone t- has different feelings when that stuff happens. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Cause at first I was kind of like, ah, everyone's faking it. You know, they're crying and they're fake crying it just for the, for, for the attention on Instagram. But after I rethought about it and like I went hunting with my dad recently, he shot like a, a tiny little buck but he was like super emotional about it and he killed it. And I was like, you know, not everyone's faking it for the gram. It's everyone's different and everyone gets those different emotions. So, so I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And it is a huge accomplishment every time you get anything on the ground. So um, it's funny how you you said a tiny little buck and how that's become part of our um, vocabulary and hunting (laughs) world. Everybody's like, you know, huge buck or, oh, that's little, you know, like I said earlier, you know, and and we all play into that, you know, right. we all, Hunter, you know, I think it's, especially with the social media these days, you're like trying to, oh, look, I got a bigger one than you and this and that. But when you, when it comes down to it, I mean, like in the archery world, uh, 10% of the people kill, kill every year, you know what I mean? So like anything down is, is successful, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. So, and especially being in the outdoor industry, we have this weird pressure on us all to, right? to kill stuff. But I just like to fill tags and um like go, like going out with my dad it was it was refreshing because he didn't care about the size of the rack he wanted some meat in the freezer and it, right. was, it was a fun hunt so i always like going on those types of hunt with hunts with family and friends where it's not where well, it's not the, yeah the, the pressure's the, gone, the pressure's gone. You, exactly. you don't have to be about you know and you guys are in in the limelight so it's it's got to be even worse for you guys you know because everybody's yeah. expecting you guys you and aaron to you know kill that kill that you know what i'm saying every time yeah. you go out so i love his comments when he's telling his mom where his mom always like, well didn't you get anything you know he's <laughs> yeah. like you know it's just not that easy you know yeah it's, it's not still, like going to the grocery still, store it's still yeah. hunting <laughs> especially with the recurve he's doing something oh. something that the most su- people the success he's had with that is, that's amazing yeah. Yeah. that's pretty but good. he definitely puts in tons and tons of work behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see and he, he'll post videos of him practicing but uh-huh. he's always practicing i believe so. that. that's good that's good man this um can I, I was gonna bring up something you got did you guys ever have any traditions the reason i bring this up is because so, you know i've been hunting like i said since i was little i think i killed my first deer when i was 12 my first elk when i was 14 literally a mile from where i killed my elk this year you know the same area but um would always take a bite of either the heart or the liver after the kill yeah so me and Abby, we have a little this. So the this first year, the first year she killed. Put me in a, <laughs> she killed. Uh, she killed her pronghorn. I was told her, you know, the whole time before, I'm telling her, okay, if you kill some, you, it's your choice. You take a little, a little bite of the heart, a little bite of the liver, and mm-hmm. a lot of times we'd carry a, a little bit of whiskey with us, <laughs> wash it down. You know, the things to clean it out, but that meat's pretty pure. And it was kind of my fault because that was the first year that she was just first kill. She's crying. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna drag it, and I ended up dragging it and gutting it out so we didn't have the heart and the liver there for her so the next year is when she missed her elk and i'm like see you jinxed yourself by not taking a bite of the heart <laughs> or the liver so she was like and i don't know if she believes it or not but every time should something happen when we were hunting i say see you jinxed yourself so her, la- her last two kills she's taking a bite <laughs> yeah that's funny yeah we growing up we always talked about doing it but when it came down to it i'd be like no nah, i'm no nah, it's not for me yeah. yeah and i tell everybody if you want to go hunting with me i go that's my one one prerequisite you will if you kill so you gotta you bite will the take heart. either a little bite of the heart a little bite of the liver i don't know which one i'd pick how was it Heather? uh it's very metallic-y mm. yeah 
because the blood is in there, um, but it's fresh. Yeah. It just, it tastes more of, um, it's more intense flavor, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I was going to make sure that I never missed another animal. <laughs> <laughs> the other aspect of missing the, the aspect of the story is that I got my antelope at 360 and wow. the elk that I missed was what, 170. Yeah, oh, so, <laughs> it's too close for you. <laughs> yeah. And so we could not figure out why I missed the elk at 160. Yeah, and, I, and so, of course, I blamed it on that. But I took Ryan this year, and he killed a, a, a smaller deer. First thing he did when he opened it up, he's like, oh. <laughs> he, he did, that was yeah. his first he knew, deer he knew killing. What to do, huh? And he's well, like, it's I took Jody <laughs> tells a story to everybody, so now everyone's freaking out. <laughs> so he out. took a big bite and goes, Holy cow, that's that's tasty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, even, and then, I mean, we don't, I don't do it every kill, but your first kill, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. And then the other thing is, you know, back in the day, my dad always, you know, you, you share the blood. So it always, you know, he'd grab, put some blood on my face, and, you know, you share, share in the blood. Yeah, that's cool. So, Passing on the traditions. Yeah, exactly. So I do that every kill, or if somebody that's with me, like cause I take a lot of people hunting when they kill, dip some blood and put it on them. And say, you like a Native it. American. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys do any of that, Dana? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you? No, I, not really. Growing up, didn't do any of that. My dad did make my brother taste the blood. Of the first deer that he killed. Oh, okay. That's yeah. kind of. I think that was the only honey ever went on those. I hate blood. I'm yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, he almost puked. <laughs> <laughs> so, did, Dana, did you grow up hunting? Or is this. Not really. But you're into it now, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. My dad hunted my whole time, like my whole childhood, but I just, I had no desire to, to get into it. But came on later in life. That's coming on strong now, right? Yeah. I mean, the. the, the the yeah. need or the want and yeah and bow hunting specifically like because he always rifle hunted and i mean i'm not too into rifle hunting frank tells me i need to rifle hunt because <laughs> dude i gotta say i nice love to... bow hunting uh-huh. but i really love rifle hunting do you yeah do you? yeah i haven't it's, picked it's like it's it's like two two separate an- things there you know there's yeah. the adventure and the the struggle of bow hunting and then you got to go rifle hunting and you can just take out all your frustrations on that rifle hunt so you like you almost <laughs> know you might get an opportunity and yeah. As long as they're like 500 and in, it's game on. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, I still do, Um. you know, like I'll still pick up my rifle for like coyotes and stuff like yeah. that and obviously waterfowl, but I mean, I I like hunting in general. Yeah, I just, exactly. I just have been dedicating so much time to, you know, bow hunting everywhere that I don't have time to go rifle hunting, but I still have, I still have them. Yeah, there's so <laughs> many. still uses them pretty good. There's so many opportunities in Colorado. That's what I've been trying to trying to tell people is you can start off with your bow hunting, get your rifle hunts in, and then you have your late rifle hunts. And then in between, if you do a uh, muzzleloader, for instance, you can do that as well. So yeah. It extends um, your season a lot because I, I bow hunted and then I was done at the end of September and I have nothing to do for the rest of the year. So it's it extends your season and it's a good way to fill the freezer. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, nothing against guns. I just kind of yeah. fell in love with the bow and yeah. had guns my whole life. So, yeah. you know, it's... But I'll tell you what, it's, um, it's fun either way. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's good. Well, cool, guys. It's, I think we're going on an hour here, so any final parting thoughts? <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah, <laughs> That's totally. been the fun. Thank you very much for having us yeah, on. Thank and you. thanks for uh, the opportunity to talk about this syndrome that everyone can um, should be aware of, especially at altitude, but especially hunters because you guys are in the backcountry, you know, 
um, far away from any medical emergency services. So something to be aware of. So thank you for the opportunity to come on your podcast and talk about this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys. And thanks for coming in and taking the time. I think it'll be very informative and a lot of people appreciate it. So thank yeah. you guys for coming on. If I, if I said one, um, the other thing I just, you know, all the hunters coming out every year and stuff, they're coming from low altitude. Um, you know, plan a stop, you know, in Denver or somewhere before they go up to the high country. You know, I, was a, I used to be a police officer up in Leadville for years and um, would have so many people a year just high, get high altitude sickness, or search and rescue would have to go get them or an oh, ambulance really? crew would have to go get them. And it's, it's so easy just to slow your trip. You know, you're already planning, spending all this money coming from out of state, low altitude to come hunt. Spend an extra night in Denver on your way there or wherever you're coming from, you know, right. to, yeah. so, you're, so you uh, acclimate quicker and better and have a much safer and, um, yeah, and actually get to hunt, you know, because mm-hmm. it, ruin, it ruins a lot of people's hunts, yeah. just getting sick and no bueno, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool. All, All right. right. Thanks, Thanks, man. Thank Appreciate it.